Welcome. Life Before Medicine begins right now. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Crawford, board-certified urogynecologist. We're here today with Toby Freshold, MD, and today's topic is going to be pelvic pain. You're going to learn a lot, so stay tuned. Let's jump right in. Dr. Freshold. I'm going to call you Toby. That's good. Because you're our special guest, but also a special friend. And I'm really grateful that you took the time out of your schedule to be with us today. I would like to give you a cursory introduction, at least. Thanks for sending me your CV. Dr. Freshold is an obstetrician gynecologist, now practicing exclusive gynecology at the VA Sierra Nevada Healthcare System. She went to medical school. University of Nevada, Reno, trained at Kaiser. Do I have this right? That's right. Mm-hmm. And has a special interest in our topic today, which is pelvic pain. This is such a big issue. We couldn't possibly cover this in a single episode, and so we've broken this into two. You're going to get the doctor perspective today, our practical experience, and then part two of this topic is going to be presented by myself and doctor, and not doctor, but soon to be doctor, Heather Dibke. She's working on her PhD right now. She is an exercise physiologist, and so you'll definitely want to tune in for that as well. So, Toby, give me a little bit of your background, your experience, why you're interested in this topic, and then we can uh, dive into it and uh, just see where the conversation goes. Great. Well, as you mentioned, I am a OBGYN. I now have um, limited my practice to gynecology and no longer practice obstetrics. But, you know, pelvic pain is just such a global issue that is multi-system and uh, really deserves a multidisciplinary approach in its evaluation and its treatment. And it just is a thread that runs through so many of my patients, regardless of their age or their socioeconomic status or their life history and, um, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction in general just really became something that I was interested in very early on in my practice. Um, And it's funny, everywhere I've ever practiced, which is a lot of places, everybody is thrilled to have a gynecologist on staff with an interest in pelvic pains because no one else wants to really uh, deal with it. So I was always very welcomed in that regard. Um, but I, I just see it as a really underappreciated, underdiagnosed, undertreated, common complaint that deserves uh, more attention. I think that's so true. And, you know, every medical specialty has its challenging diagnosis, you know, and it usually involves pain as a symptom. Maybe, I don't know for sure, but maybe for the urologist, you know, it's the uh, non-bacterial prostatitis, which is a pelvic pain thing. Or, you know, for other docs, it might be low back pain or headaches, You know, for us as gynecologists, pelvic pain has been a challenging um, diagnosis and the care of patients with this problem has been challenging. And I I always think to myself, you know, any time 
a diagnosis is named after the chief complaint means you don't know very much about the diagnosis, right? So painful bladder syndrome. Like, what does that say about our understanding of what's causing it? It used to be called interstitial cystitis. Like, the best we can do is say, yes, you hurt. And, And so often, from a lack of understanding of the origins, the causes of a diagnosis. Uh, we don't have a lot of uh, helpful remedies to offer. And within women's health, it seems like there is a dismissiveness that maybe exceeds any other specialty, right? And, and patients I t- talk to that have worked on issues of pelvic pain with other providers sometimes say, well, they've been made to feel like they're just crazy, Right. In the yeah. old days, you know, women were labeled as hysterical. The, the uterus got named, uh, the procedure for removing the uterus got named after that, you know, to do a hysterectomy. You know, impl- there, there's an implication there, an unfortunate implication there that, yeah. um, that it still penetrates healthcare today. And bottom line, we can do better. And that's what this podcast is all about. We, I know we can do better with this. Before I start researching a topic for a podcast, I kind of pretend I'm a patient and I'm, I've got a problem. And I'm going to go online and try and figure out what that problem is the way you know, people do these days, right? The democratization of publication has made all information available it's made all good information available and it's made all terrible information Hmm. available. And to find your way through the vast amount of information that's online to something that's meaningful and helpful is at least challenging, possibly impossible. And, and so in doing this, you know, I Googled pelvic pain and the first hit that comes up is the WebMD um, site that has a, lengthy slideshow about all the different things that can cause pelvic pain. And the first slide says appendicitis. <laughs> like how many times in your career, Toby, has a patient come to you with a complaint of pelvic pain and you know what? It turned out to be appendicitis. Like, I would be like, zero. Like ever. <laughs> I think in, in my career, you know, seeing outpatients, you know, two, three, four patients came in you took their history examined them and they turned out to have appendicitis but every one of those patients had the onset of symptoms within the previous 24 hours so that's not what we're talking about today right that's not what we're talking about I have some statistics for you that maybe you can comment on there's some interesting literature that that has been published which says okay this is a real issue that lots of people have some studies say there's a six to 25 percent prevalence of this pelvic pain problem which means you've had pain for six months or more and then they break it down into what the diagnosis was what the doctor surmised was the actual cause of their pain and the number one diagnosis was irritable bowel syndrome 19.8% you know what the second most common diagnosis was, representing 9.5% of the pelvic pain population? Stress. Yeah. <laughs> Stress. So you go to a doctor, you say, for the last six months or longer, 
I've been experiencing pelvic pain that's enough of an issue that I went through the ordeal of making an appointment, showing up, making my copay, going to see a doctor, and they tell you you're just stressed. Yeah. 10% of the time. Like, that gets into the hysterical kind of, you know, implication. And so in doctors have an unfortunate habit, if they don't understand something of, of kind of trying to or maybe unintentionally, but nonetheless, t- turning the tables on the patient and somehow saying, well, what you have isn't real or isn't treatable. Go talk to a psychologist. Go take an antidepressant. Find a psychiatrist. And, and patients get, I think, discouraged with that, and which yeah. is not to say psychological therapy isn't helpful. God knows everyone can benefit from a little bit of couch time. But I think you need to approach this with uh, a little greater understanding. Third most common diagnosis, ovarian cysts, 8.4%. Fourth, endometriosis, 7.4%. Fifth, cystitis, 7.2%. Pelvic inflammatory disease, 6.5%. Constipation, 6.5%. Back pain, (laughs) it's just not a diagnosis, it's a symptom, 5.7%. Uterine fibroids as the cause. Yeah. 5.1%. And then my favorite adhesions, 4.6%. And then, and then despite the fact that it was the first slide on WebMD, appendicitis was 2.5% of patients that showed up with pelvic pain. So I'm going to just go ahead, go out on a limb and say, this data is a load of bullshit. Yeah. Total bullshit. And so yeah. this, but this is what patients are up against when they start researching it themselves, right? WebMD, that sounds official. God knows it's used by a lot of people. And yet, what do you do with this information? And so in your experience treating these patients, Toby, what do you think are some of the most common causes? Or maybe we can just start with the most common cause in your experience. Well, I think of pelvic pain as a great big Venn diagram. And lots of the things that you mentioned are commonly discussed by me in consultation with patients with chronic pelvic pain. I certainly, I open the discussion with pelvic pain is complicated. It generally does not have a single cause we are going to have a number of visits where we do exams, where we order laboratory and imaging studies, where we rule things out, where we try this and we try that. And I just sort of set up the expectation that this is not a urinary tract infection where it's gonna be one visit, one lab test, one diagnosis, one treatment, and you go away and we never talk again. So I try to set that expectation up when I first meet patients. That's, I think um, that's a good, it's always a good idea right off the bat to lower expectations. <laughs> Let's just right. start. I set the bar very low. Let's myself. just start with lowering beginning. our expectations. That's right. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we have a long discussion. So the first thing is to talk a lot about surgeries and infections and um, symptoms and when they come and what makes them better and what makes it worse. I mean, you know, we can't lose the art of the good old fashioned history and good physical exam, which includes, um, you know, a good digital exam and feeling those pelvic floor muscles. 
But to your question of what do I really find to be the most common causes, you know, things like irritable bowel syndrome are often kind of an underlying piece of that Venn diagram that I talk about a lot. And, um, and can you just describe what IBS is? Irritable bowel syndrome, IBS is, um, gosh, I'm not really prepared to give the medical diagnosis of it, but it is a syndrome where patients experience often kind of sometimes loose stool, sometimes constipation, but, um, you know, sensitivity to foods, some sensitivity to stress and, and kind of life stress and psychological distress can cause bowel changes as well in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. But um, I you think know, that's an excellent description. Uh, and, and, you know, I think of it as a functional bowel complaint characterized yeah. by fluctuating constipation, diarrhea. Some, pe most people will be more on one side of that than the other. Like they tend to have loose stool or they tend to be constipated most of the time. And that's, you know, uh, admixed with the opposite sometimes. And, and so I agree that I'm, is, that is common. I'm so glad you use that term functional complaint because that's really like, what all the challenging things that we deal with in medicine are, you know, like there's no great diagnostic test for irritable bowel syndrome. Like right. there's no great diagnostic test for pelvic pain. And, you know, we have such limited tools, right? Like we send someone for a pelvic ultrasound, all the organs look normal, or I love that ovarian cyst was on your list because most women, I, if we put all of them, you know, if subjected all of them to a pelvic ultrasound, most would have a small ovarian cyst, and it's probably just a red herring and has right. nothing to do with their chronic pain. But it's kind of sometimes I think treated like an exit ramp in the process yes. of figuring this out. Oh, well, there's something right. there that I can point to. And then that, and it, again, it gets kind of at the dismissive um, experience that patients have. And I think this kind of leads in to a really important um, uh, additional example. 40% um, of gynecologic laparoscopies, right? When, and for those that don't know what laparoscopy is, when you have a small incision made in your belly button and they inflate your abdomen with CO2 and then stick a telescope in and, and look around to see if they can discern what is hurting you, Right, 40% of gynecologic laparoscopies are done for chronic pelvic pain. That's extraordinary. And at the same time, we also know that if you do laparoscopy on women without pelvic pain that are 30 years old and have never had a pregnancy, you're going to find endometriosis in maybe a third of them. And once you tell someone they have endometriosis, you have given them a lifetime dilemma. You've given them a label that they can then hang on and say, oh, that's why I'm hurting. And many, many, many patients with minimal endometriosis have no symptoms at all. But if it is discovered at the time of a diagnostic laparoscopy in someone who does have pelvic pain, it would be typical to assign that diagnosis and then basically assign it forever. I have endometriosis. And, and so this is, it's unfortunate that that occurs. And, and patients then often will wind up with more surgery, right? Yeah. The most 
you know, one of the most common surgical outcomes is more surgery. Hysterectomy, removing the ovaries. Um, that is unlikely, unlikely in many cases, I can't give a hard number, but in many cases, to uh, uh, resolve a pain complaint, especially if the pain complaint arises from something that I consider to be uh, among the most common actual causes for pelvic pain, if not the most common, from my experience as a urogynecologist, um, the high-tone pelvic floor is, is exceedingly common and misdiagnosed when working a patient up with pelvic pain complaint. What I mean by a high-tone pelvic floor is I mean that the muscles that surround the urethra, vagina, rectum, um, are chronically contracted. And if a muscle stays chronically contracted, it becomes sore. And uh, one hallmark of the high-tone pelvic floor is painful intercourse. And interestingly, some of these studies that were trying to characterize pelvic pain didn't include painful intercourse as an isolated symptom within their study. So those those people would have been excluded from the analysis if all they had was painful intercourse. And, and, and yet, I know from my experience that this is among the most important diagnoses to consider. And, and like, what do you think about the average family practice doc being able to discern a high-tone pelvic floor on pelvic exam? Because you can with training, appreciate abnormalities in the resting tone of the pelvic floor, but I just don't think people get that training. I mean, family practice doc, I don't think the average gynecologist gets good training on assessing the tone of the pelvic floor. I had the, because I expressed an interest in pelvic floor disorders during my residency training, I spent a month of elective working in a pelvic pelvic pain uh, clinic. And that's where I learned to do a good, you know, physical exam specifically for pelvic pain and to feel the levator muscles and to palpate individually the bladder, the urethra, the muscles of the pelvic floor, rather than to do this very kind of mushy, non-systematic exam. Where did you and get this? I, that was not in my res- my basic right. residency training. Right. Incredible. Absolutely incredible that that's true. Where did you get this additional training? I spent a month with Dr. Jen Gunter, who's now become somewhat of a celebrity gynecologist, at her Center for Pelvic Pain and Vulvovaginal Disorders in San Francisco. Outstanding. Yeah, it was a really great month, and I learned so much about hypertonic pelvic floor, and that was really the first place that I learned about these neuromuscular feedback loops that are probably one of the main drivers of pelvic pain, and the reason why pelvic pain doesn't get better when you remove all of the pelvic organs and... Right. You know, I get these patients that have had everything cleaned out and they, and they don't feel any better. And, and that's when you really have to address the neuromuscular issue, which is probably at the base. I, th- I think that's, that's true. And, and I appreciate you saying so. You know, an unfortunate scenario for a patient being evaluated with pelvic pain, first of all, 
they're going to show up and say, okay, I'm going to address this for the first time. Maybe they get dismissed, maybe they don't. Um, they continue to have pelvic pain, they show up again and again, and finally the doctor says, well, I guess we'll do a laparoscopy. So they do a laparoscopy, and maybe they find some adhesions, maybe they find a little bit of endometriosis, maybe they don't, um, and the patient continues to have pelvic pain. And then they say, well, we'll just remove everything, right? We'll start removing organs. Maybe they do it all at once, remove the uterus, tubes, and ovaries all at once. Maybe they remove one ovary, then another, and then the uterus, and it's multiple procedures, and then the patient still has pelvic pain. And now the doctor doesn't have anything left to remove. And often the suggestion is floated that, well, you know, when you do surgery, there's scar tissue afterwards. You may have adhesions, and sometimes they'll go back to the operating room to look to see if there are adhesions. Now, adhesions, by and large, do not hurt. They do not hurt. There are probably circumstances where adhesions do restrict the mobility of an internal organ, the bowel, for instance, or can even acquire nerve tissue in some instances. But by and large, adhesions don't hurt, and they don't change over time. They don't evolve. You have the adhesions you're going to have 72 hours after whatever surgery you had. And so you get on this cycle of, of going back to the OR multiple times for adhesiolysis to remove adhesions. And, and, and I think that in these cases... Um, the potential for actually providing long-term benefit is minimal. But sometimes I feel like surgeons especially, you know, it's sort of the, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail problem. You've got, you know, this one method of treating people to apply, and regardless of how nuanced the diagnosis might be or, or, or how... You know, multifactorial, the diagnosis might be, there may be multiple issues contributing, the same approach keeps getting uh, applied because that's the only tool you have in your toolbox. And I think that's unfortunate as well. And so, you know, I've had many patients come to me after hysterectomy, removal of the tubes and ovaries, multiple adhesiolysis, and the first thing we do is stop operating on them. Just, yeah. just we're not doing that anymore. And we try and, and, and sometimes we'll find, oh, you do have a high-tone pelvic floor that is going to fluctuate. Sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's not so bad. It probably does relate to psychic stress, what's going on in someone's life. We know there are correlations with history of trauma, especially sexual trauma. Um, and those things do need to be addressed. And this is the other thing, is just because you are referred for, to a psychologist or a psychiatrist... It, right, it, 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 people sort of feel like, well, the, the doctor says I'm crazy, which is interpreted as I'm making this up. It's not real. And that's far from true. That's far from true. The mind is incredibly powerful. And for some reason, um, it can have a negative impact on pelvic sensation. We know it can definitely have a negative impact on the resting tone of the pelvic floor, as we've discussed. And, um, and so... Those kinds of interventions can be very helpful, and, and we shouldn't be put off by someone suggesting that um, you know, one needs to process an event in their history that may be contributing um, from a psychic stress 
point to the, to the uh, diagnosis that they're trying to deal with. It's, you know, it's, it's not hopefully just a way of getting you out of the office. Yes. And I think that's really where the clinician comes in, in terms of explaining and educating the patient in the way that you just did, right? So when I send somebody to a pelvic floor physical therapist, or I send somebody to a pain psychologist, I have to make sure that they understand my thinking around that. And not that I'm just sort of turfing them off, as we say. Um, You know, to the, I wanted to make a comment about the hypertonic pelvic floor. The way that I try to help patients understand that is that I sort of say for myself, I have a stressful job and I work at a computer and, you know, I, I have a lot of stress and tension in in my shoulders. And I kind of show them that like, if you touch those muscles on the top of my shoulders, they're hard. They feel like little rocks. They're tender, you know? And so I try to make that same um, analogy for the muscles of the pelvic floor. If you are carrying stress and tension in the pelvis, which many women do, um, then you're going to have constriction of these pelvic floor muscles. And there are specialists, just like there are physical therapists that can help me with my shoulder pain. There are physical therapists that can help you with muscle tension in the pelvic floor. Yeah. There's a good book in called Headache in the Pelvis, produced uh, many years ago by a Stanford group that talks about this, I think, primarily from the physical therapist standpoint. And, you know, within the um, pool of physical therapists, at least in this country, there is a specialty designation of women's health physical therapy that do have specialized training in assessing pelvic floor tone and how to perform a particular type of pelvic floor massage that just uniformly freaks everybody out because it does sound kind of crazy because the point of access to those muscles is through the vagina in a woman or through the rectal wall in a male. But you can um, use these techniques to improve symptoms. It does usually require multiple visits. It's not uniformly successful um, and not uniformly accessible in that there just aren't that many of these women's health physical therapists, but the ones I've worked with have been pretty good and um, seem to know more about this particular diagnosis than 99% of healthcare providers. Yes. I think when most patients think of, you know, exercising or rehabilitating the pelvic floor, they think of kegels and it's all about squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. And we have to remind people that not everybody needs squeezing. Some people need relaxing and that's a strategy to learn, to learn to, you know, in yoga, they talk about the mula bandha. So just, you know, relax and letting that pelvic floor settle and relax. And that's a, a tool that Lots of our patients have to learn, like any other skill. And it's challenging. It's so challenging. And so, you know, many years ago, I created a method for up training or fitness training the pelvic floor called Pilates, P-F-I-L-A-T-E-S. And we have about 5,300 instructors trained worldwide right now, and an important part of our course is talking about the high-tone pelvic floor, trying to make sure we're... um, loyal to our commitment to first do no harm, right? You don't want to up-train a pelvic floor that isn't relaxing, right? 
And so patients who's, you know, they may have bladder complaints like urinary frequency or urgency. They may have um, other symptoms as well, but if their principal complaint is a pain complaint, they really need to be evaluated by someone that knows what they're doing, a urogynecologist or a women's health physical therapist um, or, or someone at a pelvic pain center um, before they start up-training the pelvic floor. So pain is kind of the hallmark of this high-tone pelvic floor problem. And the Filates website is, in the next couple weeks, I think, launching a course, an online course, on the high-tone pelvic floor and some conservative things that can be done to uh, mitigate symptoms associated with the high-tone pelvic floor. Um, and we're very excited about that. And um, I'd love to get your input on it as well once it's released. Great. Yeah. The, um, what else can we talk about? I always like to try and provide some kind of practical tie-in because I'm thinking now, again, like the listener who maybe has been struggling with this problem and is Googling like crazy and somehow comes across Life Before Medicine and this particular podcast. And, and I want to give them a takeaway that's practical. And I think, you know, what we've said already about, you know, the educational gap, experience gap that exists within the healthcare system and then is amplified by the information gap that exists between the healthcare system and the patient, um, I think just knowing that would possibly incentivize one to seek out a provider that has a special interest in this diagnosis. And that's useful all by itself, just right there. Number two, you're not crazy. You're not hysterical, right? That's the number one thing. And if you are made to feel that you're crazy or hysterical, a second opinion is probably in order. And um, in addition to that, um, knowing that there is a subspecialty of physical therapy, there are conservative things you can do outside the medical realm, um, and, and, a, um, and we address those in our high-tone pelvic floor course. Um, what else can we offer? That um, I always add that, you know, with any chronic pain complaint, whether it's back pain, whether it's headaches, any, any chronic pain issue, it's just so important to emphasize self-care. Any chronic pain patient I ever talk with, I tell them every decision that you make is going to affect how you feel. And so prioritizing sleep, getting some physical activity in most days, making good choices around alcohol, doing whatever you can do to mitigate the stress in your life, all of that stuff is going to have a not insignificant impact on your ability to cope with your chronic pain issue and also probably directly feeds into how much pain you're experiencing on a daily basis. Right. And to the psychiatric, you know, the psychological component, you know, no, it's not in your head, but there are real strategies for dealing with a life experience that is marred with pain. And those professionals can help patients kind of, you know, live a good life, even if it has some pain as a component of it. And that's where those professionals are just really valuable. And these are specially trained psychologists? 
Well, you know, in San Francisco, we had the luxury of specifically working with pain psychologists. Yes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even any mental health provider that can help you kind of cope with, you know, and just not seeing, separating the difference between a life and a life with pain, that there can be good days that even have pain and, you know, that just kind of separating that component and not focusing on it entirely it's just a coping strategy i think that's so important and the and i I think equally important is is don't be defeated if the first opinion isn't providing satisfaction get a second opinion if the second opinion isn't providing satisfaction get a third don't give up don't give up and it, and yeah, and don't be afraid to ask your doctor, do you have experience with this? You know, yeah. if, if you, do you have any experience with pelvic pain? It's okay if you don't. Please find me someone who does or make a recommendation or get on the internet and find somebody who start at a center and see if they can find someone that's more, re, you know, local to your to your region, but yes, yeah, so not just know that not just because somebody has referred you to a gynecologist does not mean that they have expertise in this subject. Such an important point. Such an important point. Toby, I'm so grateful that you made the time to share with us on Life Before Medicine today. We have part two coming up with Heather Dibke, and we will talk about some more practical um, things we can do outside the uh, medical system um, but anytime you have a pain complaint, it is important to rule out dangerous things that doctors can diagnose. And so you do not want to confuse this for your health care, right? This is informational. I'm not your doctor, and I'm not giving you medical recommendations. What I'm giving you is encouragement and education. And, and I think that uh, if you can hold on to... Um, the attitude of being proactive about your problems and not being defeated because you've had one or two or multiple negative encounters, don't give up because the person who can provide good, sound, helpful advice may be your next encounter. That's my opinion anyway. And this is Life Before Medicine. We're going to drop the second part of our pelvic pain discussion in just a few days you want to look for that stay tuned we're available on spotify apple google or you can just go to lifebeforemedicine.com i'm dr bruce crawford here today with dr toby freshhold i'm very grateful for your attention today we'll be in touch you'll be in touch too thanks a lot